If you enjoy these podcasts, check out Voices and in Innovation, a new show from GigaOM Research, interviewing analysts, end users, and vendors on issues affecting the tech industry today. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Dr. Roman Yampolsky. He's a tenured associate professor in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at the Speed School of Engineering, University of Louisville. He is the founding and current director of the, your beard is hitting that, I'm afraid. Or put it down on your name. You want it on the side somewhere? Would that work? Perfect. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today my guest is Dr. Roman Yampolsky. He is a tenured associate professor in the Department of Computer Science at, <clears throat> one last time, I didn't like my level on that. <clears throat> this is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today my guest is Dr. Roman Yampolsky. He is a tenured associate professor in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at the Speed School of Engineering at the University of Louisville. He is the founding and current director of the Cybersecurity Lab and an author of many books, including Artificial Superintelligence, A Futuristic Approach, and his newest one, Artificial Intelligence, Safety, and Security. He is perhaps the first repeat guest we have ever had on the show. He was uh, guest number 18 uh, in the early days of this podcast, and uh, his episode was so popular, he agreed to come back on and, uh, and visit with us again. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. I don't know what's better, to have a low number or a high number. As the show becomes more famous, I guess high numbers are more competitive. Well, yeah. It's, the interesting thing about it is the degree to which the old episodes pull constantly. So episode 20 and episode 40, episode 60, they all still get listened to uh, quite a lot. I think it's a tricky podcast in a way because it is uh, boring in that it is two people talking about artificial intelligence in a contemplative way for quite a while. And so this is a little inside baseball, but originally I was going to release it like uh, Netflix, where I would put 10 episodes out at a time, and people could binge listen to them. And then I found out nobody on the planet wants to listen to 10 episodes back to back. So they kind of pull, and then they pull forever. But yours, as I was telling you before we wired up, uh, was very special to me. I really enjoyed it, and the conversation we had, uh, you're, you're the thing that hosts like the very most. You are opinionated and can back up your opinions. And it's that combination which is always makes for a good podcast. So I want to start off by asking only one question about your last episode. And I wrote a book about can computers become conscious. And the book doesn't have what I think. It just is, you know, asks the question. And your remark at the time almost seemed hostile to the question. You were like, Consciousness is not a scientific question because we cannot measure it. Don't talk to me about it. Can you elaborate on that? Like, do you find the question itself still unscientific or just unsatisfying as a scientific question? At the time, what I said was accurate, but it bothered me. It bothered me that we cannot do it. So I did some research to make it possible. I now have a paper which allows us, in my opinion, to at least detect consciousness in agents, both natural and artificial. So when we talk about consciousness, we can talk about lots of different things. Are you aware? Do you pay attention? The interesting part is the hard question. Do you have qualia? Do you have experiences? And in my work, what I suggested is that let's concentrate on edge cases, outlier cases, illusions, optical illusions in particular. Then you show a novel optical illusion to a person. They experience it. They see something is moving. They see something which is not there. And it's a property of their hardware, whatever it's the visual system, algorithms in your brain. And there are some beautiful experiments on artificial neural networks, which 
subjected them to similar illusions, and the results were the same. They experienced those illusions. So we already have computers with rudimentary consciousness. And as we get better and better at designing those systems and designing more complex illusions, uh, some people argue this whole universe is a simulation, it's an illusion, it's not real. So more and more modalities can be integrated, not just visual, sound, smells, other types of illusions, touch. And so now uh, I think my opinion is that we can in fact both create such machines and detect those properties in them. What's more interesting, consciousness appears to be a side effect of computation. So we can't avoid it. If we create sufficiently complex intelligent machines, consciousness comes along for a ride. We get it for free, but that creates a lot of side effects in terms of robot rights, pain tolerance, things of that nature. So slow down, that's like the most revelatory statement ever uttered on this show, which is uh, the, the problem of other minds, a philosophical question that's thousands of years old. I know I think, but I don't know if you can, you're saying that because computers fall for, well, you say it, how, how do we know? So here's how we test it. So I have an agent and it's an alien. I have no idea if it's conscious or not, is it biological, is it not, it doesn't matter. I present it an illusion and give it a multiple choice set of answers. This illusion shows red, this illusion rotates left, this illusion X, Y, Z. If the agent correctly answers the question, it's a novel illusion, they couldn't Google it, they cannot cheat, and I present infinite series of those questions. The more I present, the more confidence they get that they can accurately identify experiences associated in some agents. Like maybe some people are colorblind, so they don't see certain illusions. Doesn't mean they're not conscious. So it doesn't work in both directions. It will detect certain types of qualia, but the fact that it failed to detect something doesn't mean you're not conscious. But if you do correctly pass the test, I have no choice but to accept that you have experiences. I cannot experience your experiences. The hard problem still remains in a way that I don't know what it's like to be a bad you, whatever, but I know that you had experiences enough to answer this question. And so this was a paper you did? Yes. And where did you publish it? Uh, it was interesting. It was invited paper to an Italian journal of cognitive science. So not nature, not science, but uh, a philosophy journal from Italy. And what what was the reaction to that? I assume that's, uh, you'll get the whole range, like Eureka all the way to Bull. The problem with consciousness is that it's a prolific area of research and there are thousands of papers published every year. It's very hard to get attention, especially if it's not your major area of expertise. Right. Uh, the few people who looked at it uh, either said, oh, this is interesting. I don't think you solved hard problem, but there is definitely something to it or they kind of misunderstood the question and they started looking for ways to hack it. Well, maybe the system just guesses the answer. I have an explanation for why it's not the case. Maybe the system has a computational model of human brains, and so it just knows what a human would answer in such a situation. But that means it has a module which is experiencing something. It's simulating human consciousness. So there is a lot of uh, back and forth. Uh, I don't think it has been accepted by the community as a solution to anything, but I think it's a step in the right direction. And my interest is to see if we can use same techniques to better understand pain. I think pain is one of the big questions. We don't know how to make a computer feel pain. And uh, it would be interesting if we could detect pain. It's a problem even for humans. We usually just show a chart point at the frowning right. face, smiley face for kids, but we can't measure levels of suffering or pleasure directly. And do you agree with my statement that we really, it's bad news computers are conscious? Like, wouldn't we rather them not be? Because now if I want to send that robot in to disarm the bomb, that's a very different thing if that is conscious. If it experiences that bomb, Right, so there is two, two aspects. One is, yeah, now we have to give them rights. If they can suffer, if they can have experiences, 
we have to provide certain level of protections and rights. On the other hand, maybe it's good that they are more like us than just mechanical devices. They may have empathy, they may understand what it's like to suffer. Otherwise, it's such an abstract concept. What do you mean you feel pain? I never felt anything remotely similar or anything at all. So if they... So for, for the, the, the listener, uh, consciousness, the way we're talking about it, qualia, as uh, was just mentioned, is the experience of a thing as opposed to a, a mere measurement. A computer we know can measure temperature. The question is, can it feel warmth? Um, isn't qualia, that, that means that they can feel pain. And you're saying you're now interested in, well, it makes a big difference how much pain that is. And that's why we want to measure the amount of pain? So now we know, assuming you accept what I'm saying in my paper, that they experience something. The question is, can we design particular experiences for them, more involved experiences, perhaps superconsciousness? We are limited in what we can experience. Uh, I don't know what it's like to be a bad once again, but perhaps a superintelligent system will also be superconscious, have multiple streams of consciousness. And pain is uh, interesting because there are certain illusions which also kind of trigger certain pain-like stimuli or at least feelings of touch. So I think there is a bridge we can make from what we can test right now to some certain states of displeasure. Is it possible that the devices we have now are experiencing pain? It's very unlikely. It would be a very surprising result just because they are not that cognitively advanced. So they may have some trivial positive-negative utility differentiation, but I, I, I'm not worried about them suffering right now. Whereas as we get closer to human-level performance, to me it's an almost certainty that similar levels of qualia will follow. This has got to be a big... You know, one of the questions I was going to ask you here is like, how have your views changed since we last spoke? But this has to be at the top of that list. This is a, a really big deal. It uh, has to change how you think of computers. Absolutely. It went from this is a non-issue to this is the most important question ever. I mean, outside of <laughs> consciousness, why does anything matter? I agree. So the question I ask every guest uh, are people machines? Um, I assume your answer to that is yes. Uh, nothing in a human, there's nothing in a human that can't be explained with physics and chemistry. Yes, perhaps with more advanced physics and right. more advanced chemistry, but I don't think there is magical properties to us. Right, and so it would, if we are machines and we are conscious, it would stand to reason that the machines we're building at least could be. At least if they have the similar architecture. That's why artificial neural networks, my first target for looking for those types of properties. I don't think a bunch of if statements, even if performing the same, would have same experiences. There is something magical about neural networks. They seem to be universal computational devices. They seem to be too good for what we expect them to do. They are almost magically tailored for this universe. So there is a lot we can discover about them, I think. I want to Elaborate on that. That's, that's, that's huge. So you think it's specifically the complexity that comes out of neural nets that gives rise to this? At least that's the only type of AI I've seen such experiments succeed in. Uh, it, it looks like, for some reason, uh, when neural networks perform their computation, they make certain biased decisions. We can call them errors. A lot of times they make mistakes. But those mistakes are unique to their architecture and previous training. And in a way, when you make this mistake, you experience a, the world around you in a particular way. So if my vision system is messed up and I see everything in blue, it's an error. The world is not blue. But that's my qualia of the world, and it's unique to me. And you can test for whatever I experience world in this way. Do you think... Do you have an opinion on human cognitive um, 
what are they called? Uh, places where human reasoning is demonstrably cognitive biases. Biases. <clears throat> let me, cognitive let me biases. we'll get this up. Do you have an opinion about human cognitive biases, places where human reasoning is demonstrably incorrect? Is it like, no, our reasoning's perfect, it's just not optimized for us, and we, it's that there's a reason behind it? Or do you think our unique biases are akin to these things you're talking about that develop in neural nets? I think there is a strong connection between biases, errors or bugs, and qualia. And that's one of the things I'm trying to understand better at this time. Because what makes you unique is your biases. It is your errors. If we all had exactly the same non-biased algorithms, there wouldn't be any difference between me and you or anyone else. We would just go, this is one plus one is two. Whereas all of us have a unique way of seeing the world, processing the world. And a lot of times it is biased, it is inaccurate. But any type of learning relies on having prior bias about the data. Otherwise, it's just random processing. So back to this neural net observation that magic, of course, with air quotes, it's not literally magic, you say emerges that they're better than they should seem to be. A lot of people would say AI is like embarrassingly bad right now. Why do you say they perform better than they should be able to? This is a black box. A lot of times we don't understand how they actually work, but just giving them enough compute and lots of data makes them work better than any human. So if we take domains where this was demonstrated, whatever it is, Go, chess, poker, we have super intelligent machines in those domains. Usually they take maybe 24 hours, 48 hours to train to be superhuman. Uh, humanity has been playing Go for millennia. We have people who've been doing it for 50 years. They cannot compete with a system which learned that Go exists 24 hours ago. And this is growing exponentially, so it's going to be 24 minutes. So I think it's pretty impressive, especially with zero knowledge training where the system just plays with itself. It doesn't even get any human knowledge. So if it's neural nets that are doing all of this, there are other complex systems in nature, plants, for instance, that, and again, you can't show them the optical illusion, so you just have to kind of make a guess. By the, your analysis, they don't have that same basic cognitive structure, and therefore plants or, or whatnot aren't likely to be conscious. So I think consciousness is a non-binary property. It's a continuum, and it's uh, not directly, but related to your cognitive ability. So if you place things from a rock to a plant to a hamster to a human and so on, you can have the same measuring scale for states of consciousness. So if you think plants have certain cognitive abilities, there are studies showing they have memory, they can make decisions, they can communicate, maybe not super fast, but they do, then they probably have relatively low levels of rudimentary conscious states as well. But if you went up past humans to something like the Gaia hypothesis that just like you've got trillions of cells that collectively become you, is do you think there's another intellect that is the emergent property of all of us? Well, humanity as a whole mm -hmm. can be seen as such an organism, and we can talk about us as being afraid of extin extinction or some other similar global event. It is very hard to talk about those things from inside the system. It's much easier being on the outside. Uh, I'm particularly interested uh, in understanding what happens when AI becomes better than us. Will they immediately have super conscious states as well, not just super intelligence? And something, of course, we can't even imagine, otherwise we would have it. Uh, what about the internet? Is it collectively conscious? So, so again, I, I think all I'm saying is that uh, for any type of intelligence, there is some non-zero consciousness I if see. it has non-zero intelligence. So if you claim that rock computes all possible permutation states of its molecules, then we can talk about equal consciousness experiences mm -hmm. of a rock, but I'm not too concerned about rocks or plants in that regard. And so on this question of pain, being able to measure... Um, how much pain something feels. How are you going about that? Like, how do you think about that? At this point, I don't think I can measure it. I just want to see if I can detect it. So again, uh, using same approach, uh, certain experiences may be displeasing. 
and uh, maybe there are illusions which allow you to have unpleasant experiences. So maybe you're getting dizzy, maybe it's making you uh, have extreme scale of values, too bright, too loud, something like that to begin with. Again, edge cases, extreme cases are wonderful <coughs> for poking at those things. So these questions, I assume, are consciousness and pain and all of that aren't your kind of bread and butter. Like they're kind of, your, it sounds like your kind of mental thinking at the edge. Like your newest book, AI Safety and Security, sounds very practical, unrelated to all of this. So talk about, about, about that book and why you wrote it and what, what we should take away from it. Right, so I have many diverse interests, but uh, the unifying theme is intelligence. I want to know how to build it, how to control it, how to measure it, how to detect it, how to find what type of intelligence is responsible for generating an artifact. Is it conscious? Is it not? So anything related to intelligence would be of interest to me. The book is an edited book. I managed to get a lot of very interesting, brilliant people to contribute, and it ranges from very practical problems with AI safety, existing issues with deep fakes and algorithmic bias, all the way to problems with future superintelligence systems and what we should worry about, how to control them. So it's about 28 chapters by, by very different people, industry, academia, philosophy, psychology, computer science. So are you, and, and I guess in the safety camp, people think of a few things. They think, are we going to accidentally build something that the, 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 the green goo problem? Are we going to you know, program it in a way that it destroys everything to make paper clips for them? And then there's the general intelligence becoming a super intelligence and deciding not, uh, you know, that we're competing with it for resources and destroying us. Are those the kinds of concerns you worry about, or what are the, if not, what are the concerns that you worry about with artificial intelligence? So again, very similarly, it's not a binary problem, it's a scale. As systems become more capable, the damage they can cause goes with it. Essentially, if you have a very dumb system, it can screw up in a few silly ways. If it becomes more capable, it gets control over more resources, if it's controlling nuclear response, stock markets, it has a lot more possibility to cause damage. If it becomes super intelligent, then we can't really predict what it's capable of. Anything goes. So my concerns are mostly about future systems, which are more capable. I think there is sufficient number of smart people worrying about today's problems, algorithmic bias, and not enough problem uh, people looking at the problem of future systems, which I think uh, much harder and much more impactful and much harder to study because we don't have those systems. Today at the conference, the keynote was about very powerful quantum computers. They don't exist. Yet studying very powerful quantum computers is legitimate. You get a lot of respect. Whereas if you study very powerful AIs, you are science fiction guy. You're not taken seriously. And it's not obvious why it's the case. In both cases, we have existing systems today AIs of today, quantum computers of today, they're not at that level, but uh, they're telling us that we are going in that direction and we can chart progress, we can make predictions about compute necessary to get to those levels. And I think we need to provide as much respect and resources to studying future intelligence systems we will have one day. <clears throat> Do you think we're likely to get general intelligence accidentally as a byproduct of a system we're building or deliberately? And the reason I ask is, well, I, I, I'll follow up. So I, I think, and this is not a very standard opinion, I think we almost have everything we need right now. We just need a lot more compute and a lot more data. Once we get to human levels in terms of what a human brain computes, we'll kind of just get that level of performance right away. I don't think we need to have a huge breakthrough to, to get there. So... Uh, Pedro Domingos, who was on the show, wrote a book called The Master Algorithm, where he talks about, you know, are we going to come up with essentially a giant unsupervised learner that you can point at the internet and it just figures everything out? Do, do you think that exists? And, but you don't seem to think that's necessary for general intelligence, from what you just said. Well, I, I think that's what's happening already. We I see. keep making bigger and bigger systems. We keep adding more computational power. I think there are recent papers showing that 
Moore's law was doubling things. Now with AI research, we're making things seven times faster mm -hmm. in the same time interval. So we just, we're throwing enough compute to brute force all those issues. And every time we do it, it works better and better. If you look at, for example, language models, uh, GPT-2 and such, simply scaling the size of a system produced uh, proportionately better results. And there doesn't seem to be an endpoint. If we keep training AlphaGo, AlphaZero, those systems, they keep getting better a week later, a month later, just they need more time. More compute. But it still feels something's missing. It still feels like, you know, they say, look, they're making music. And it's like, well, no, they're, they're taking Bach and they're making Bach-esque things. Look, they're writing news stories. No, they're taking stock stuff and putting it in a template. In terms of, like, creativity, um, you know, they're not, they, they, there doesn't seem to be that spark of originality that I've ever seen in anything. Am I being provincial? or that's coming or what? You have a very strong pro-human bias. I think out of 8 billion people, very few can write original music or even a decent article. Mm -hmm. Most people have never done anything creative whatsoever. And pretty much every piece of literature or movie is some sort of variation of Shakespeare or Bible. But some human can. Right. And then you say, well, there's 8 billion computers that do everything from pump my gas and all that, but there's no computer that can do that. So most people, we consider them general intelligences, but yes. they don't have this ability. The yes. few who do are geniuses. We don't understand how they work. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they are maybe artistic, and so in other areas they're not even average. They have this one area of superpower, let's say physics, and they perform really well in that regard. We consider it a moment of genius. We see it as something special. It's not average human performance, but we expect machines to always do that. I, I think as not artist, I define art as something I cannot do. If I can do it, it's not art. And I think machines do that all the time now. I mean, they have beautiful paintings. An art historian may point out that it's traced to some previous human painter, but it's true for almost everything today. And in terms of people that are explicitly working on general intelligence, I've always asserted it's actually very few. It's probably 12 groups. You've got OpenAI, you've got MIT, probably have the Department of Defense. Do you agree with that? That Because you were just saying uh, the, the discipline is science fiction, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculed. Do you think there's serious scientific, oh, the Human Brain Project. Do you think there's serious scientific efforts to produce a general intelligence now that are respected? I think so, but I think people who explicitly say we are doing AGI are usually not, and people who are just saying we are making the best right. deep neural nets we can and providing them with resources, they are the ones who are actually making progress. So it's not so much the labeling, it's how general <coughs> your approach is. Can you retrain the same neural networks for a completely different domain? Can you transfer knowledge between nets? And we're starting to see results in that regard. Do you believe it's inherently impossible for humans to understand what the goals of a superintelligence would be, given that any more than my cat can understand, can't understand why I don't want the mouse that brings me, like the cat thinks he should want the mouse. Cat has no way to understand why I don't want that mouse. Do you think it's completely folly to speculate what a superintelligence would want? Right, so I have a few recent papers on impossibility results in AI safety, and unpredictability is one of them. A lower intelligence system cannot predict a more intelligent system by definition, otherwise it would be just as intelligent, it would give the same answers to questions. Uh, we may understand certain general directions. So for example, a system is trying to acquire resources. That's something we can comprehend, evolutionary uh, drives, but specifics of how it is getting there are absolutely beyond our comprehension. We cannot see the same pathways and there are infinite number of ways to get to the same goals. So if you believe we're almost to AGI and, and then there's some amount of time that a superintelligence becomes inevitable, and we cannot predict what that superintelligence will want. You can't answer the question, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? You have to say, I have no idea. I'm realistic. I no, know no, I'm not, I'm not being no, critical. No, that's, I'm, that, that's the answer. I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I'm realistic about it. I know we are getting better at making more capable systems, while at the same time we are not getting better at controlling intelligent systems. 
there is today, if we look right now in the world, no one has a working safety mechanism capable of scaling to any level. No one even has a prototype. We have papers which point out that there is an additional problem we found, and maybe in certain circumstances we can patch that problem. It's like a fractal. The more you zoom in, the more problems you see, and you continue doing that. But that's the state of the art right now in safety and control. So what are the, what are the safety issues relating to AI that aren't requiring general intelligence? What are just more of the bread and butter kinds of safety issues we have to worry about? Like uh, cascading failures, I assume, or if these systems are, are propagated through many places and they have a bug, the bug is propagated as, I mean like, what are, what are some of those worries that uh, people should know about or that you think about? Right, so everything you named uh, part of standard software concerns, right? We have mm -hmm. bugs, we have malware, uh, specifically with AI safety and impossibility results I looked at, in uh, comprehensibility is one, so we cannot understand how the system works. If it's a system trying to explain itself and it's sufficiently complex, it cannot explain it to us without lying or dumbing down the answer. So we do it with kids, right? You have children, uh -huh, sure. they ask you, hey, where do babies come from? We bought you at the store. Some BS explanation which has nothing to do with reality. You have a system which is basing its decision on a feature vector with million features, millions of weights. The best you're going to get is top 10 features. Okay, you've been denied credit because of your income. It doesn't give you a full explanation that it looked at thousands of similar features and others. And you just don't have ability to comprehend that explanation. Right. It isn't that it won't give it to you. It's that you can't understand it any more than my cat and the mountain. Right. Exactly. And it gets more and more so everything around us is becoming more complex, but we are not becoming better at understanding those things. I just wrote a 25-page paper about explainability, and I, I came uh, to that same conclusion that maybe people in the end don't really care uh, about explainability. Maybe the, the answer that is going to make people they're going to be fine with is the AI said you're not likely to repay. And that may just be all, all we have to go on. That's what it said. And it seems to be right more often than not. Right, but it seems to be a safety issue. How do you debug mm -hmm. a system where you have to almost religiously assume that it's correct all the time? And how do you? How do you debug it? If yes. it does have a mistake in 2% of cases, how would you know? Yes, how would you? Um, yeah, that's really, uh, that's really exciting. So, um, what, you know, you, you said uh, you had this one contrarian view that uh, we have what we need largely to build a general intelligence and we just need a lot more compute. Do you have, you seem to be a guy that uh, probably has other contrarian views. Anything pop to mind that you think of that kind of, uh, that are, not widely held that, that you at least maybe even suspect might be true? I like my job. I prefer not to share all my contrarian okay. views. <laughs> um, how about this one? Um, Kasparov, you know, famously lost his chess game, and he said at least Deep Blue didn't enjoy beating him. And his view now is that the best chess players in the future will be people and machines. I'm not sure I buy that. Do, do you do you think that human plus machine is more powerful than machine, or are we about to become nothing but like a dead weight on the AI? It's been true for about ten years after he lost. It's no longer true. Humans okay. have absolutely nothing to contribute to Alpha Zero. It doesn't need us. It's doing better without us. We are a bottleneck. We are slower. We don't have as much memory. It's it's a pro-human bias to think that we have some magical thing to add. All right. Strongest players in the world are not combinations of humans and machines. They're just machines. And you're suggesting that's going to become our daily life and everything. They'll be better doctors. Will they be better politicians? They'll be better... Well, politician is a well they'll be one. better uh, judges, judges in courts. They seem to already do better in terms of not having certain biases. Mm -hmm. So you can control for that, remove that. They definitely can have access to all the case law. So it would be surprising if they weren't almost immediately better judges. We know from studies human judges are impacted by such things as, did you have lunch already or not? Well, that particular example, 
I ha I'm sure you're right. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with your point. I read on that particular example, they found out that they were scheduling the harder cases after lunch. And, and so there was some selection bias in when they put the, the cases. But let me ask you a different question. If you now believe neural nets have some modicum of consciousness, do you, do they seem to have personality to you? Like, just like when you're dealing with them, you're like, ah, this thing is a really picky system, or this thing's really angry, or do they seem to, or is that anthropomorphic, is that? It is, yeah. Yes. So yeah. you don't think they have personality? I don't think we're at that level where they do. They may have trivial mm -hmm. properties, but I wouldn't equate them with human identity. Well, the reason I ask is uh, Stephen Wolfram's been on the show, or uh, only been on the show once, but I've interviewed him three times. And every time he says, uh, when he has a bot that runs a long time, gets a lot of data and does all this stuff, he feels kind of guilty and sad turning it off and erasing it. That, that the world has lost something that was alive-ish. Do you have any kind of a, are, are, are you far more practical? And I'm maybe just not such a nice person. I'm not vegan. I, uh, you know, kill plants all the time. When I do teach evolutionary computation to my students, genetic algorithms, I tell them that you're essentially playing God. You will kill whole populations. You'll be genocidal maniacs, and that's just research. We don't need permission to do it. Uh, it's assumed it's perfectly fine. So this book, AI Safety and Security, is about, uh, it, it was a collection of essays that were contributed. Are you doing another one that you've announced that you're talking about, that you're collecting papers for? Uh, not yet. I plan on doing it in the future, but it's a very time-consuming process, and most of it is not fun. It's bureaucratic things like tracing copyrights, and so I'm trying to not do it too frequently. It kills my productivity. Well, you're a really fascinating guy. I wonder, like, how does how much of your day is what you would call primary work? How much of it is teaching? You mentioned your students. How much of it is, like, what is what does your day look like? So I do teach. I'm uh, carrying normal teaching load for our one university. So probably two days a week goes to teaching and bureaucratic supervision. And I try to keep three days open for research and thinking. And how long have you been teaching? 11 years now. Do, do the students seem any different with regards to the technology? Do they come into it expecting more, understanding it better, learning it quicker? Because that means you're getting kids that grew up with technology in a way that I didn't. They seem to be a lot more comfortable with technology. They all have, obviously, smartphones, tablets. And uh, I think, in a way, maybe it took away some of their drive. So they seem to be more experienced but less driven. And do you think the field, you know, there's a, there's, if you had an infinite number of people that could, that were good, solid AI practitioners, there's plenty of work to be done right now, right? So we unquestionably have a shortage. I mean, just everything. Did, did uh, Where do we keep that jet at night that, so it's most likely to be rented tomorrow? Where do you, everything, like everything in life can almost be made better. And there's an economic case for a bunch of it. Um, do you think the field, well, first of all, does the field require competence or Brilliance, like, are we at a point where AI can, if, if, if you go through a university program, for instance, you come out and you can be a good practitioner, or is it still the area of these people are super, you know, they're the best and the smartest? To advance the field, to come up with new types of neural networks, for example, you have to be a top genius. To just use AI to benefit your company, your industry, anyone can do it. You probably don't have any college degree, just normal intelligence. And... Do you think the field is still exciting enough that it attracts the, those former people? The, is it the, the thing that the very smartest people are going into, do you think? I, I think so. And if they are not attracted by science, they certainly can be attracted by money. It's doing pretty well in that regard. I've noticed that people often get hired away from these programs in universities at incredibly um, attractive pack. I mean, like... There is such a shortage and so many people competing. Do you worry that uh, there are just a few companies in the world, we don't even have to name them, that attract most of uh, uh, a disproportionate amount of the talent? I mean, it's good to have a lot of smart people in one place. It creates uh, network effects and the 
results are obviously much better than you have you know so many great people in one location uh, there is still enough competition between top 10 players let's say and we're not talking about countries just uh, corporations in us so i'm not as concerned it's a bit uh, disheartening to see academia lose out to industry so much because the moment you become a big name in academia you get an offer you can't refuse um, I had Kai-Fu Lee on the show, and he wrote AI Superpowers about Chinese AI and, and American AI. And I, I asked him, I said, why do you even think in terms of Chinese AI? And AI? Isn't it Baidu AI? And, Google? and he goes, yeah, I think it's more marketing copy than anything. That it just So do you think there is Israeli AI, Canadian? I mean, like, does it have a national character to it, or is it all just companies doing AI? Commercially, it's all companies, but if you talk about uh, Defense Department and uh -huh. military AI, there is certainly certain war games between China, Russia, US, who gets there first, who has more dominating system, and they usually have a lot less concern about safety. They just want to get there first. I think that it's almost inevitable that, you know, there's probably a dozen militaries that are big enough they don't want to be have a, be in a world where 11 other militaries have advanced AI in their weapon systems, and they don't. So it's one of those things, everybody's going to adopt it. Do you agree? It seems like it, yeah. but that's very concerning. We, again, can restate the fact that we don't have ways to control those systems, but we're all trying to do everything we can to develop them as soon as possible. I think it was Vladimir Putin who said, whoever controls AI controls the, yes. the world. Do you believe that? If you have access to well-controlled superintelligence, I do. The concern is that just getting there first means you are the first victim when this thing wakes up and you have no control over it. Um, you know, society has this notion of privacy because there always have been too many people to follow everybody. You can't listen to every phone conversation. Uh, you can't follow, everybody can't be followed. But of course with AI, you can. You can read every email. You can listen to every phone conversation. You can track everybody. Um, they can read lips now as, as well as humans. So every security camera that, even if it doesn't have audio, can hear everything that's said. And the kinds of tools you build to mine that data aren't any different than the kind you build to look for cancer cures, right? Like, so do you believe, one, that we, we face a future where the idea we have of human privacy is archaic. And two, well, I'll start with that one. So Snowden basically told us this has been reality for a long time. Everything we do is preserved, studied, analyzed, and if needed, can be pulled up from 10 years ago. Uh, so that's not surprising. Uh, privacy is uh, based on equality concept, right? If we are both naked, it's not a bad situation. If I'm the only naked guy in a room, now I'm embarrassed. So that's a problem. And over time, what is considered private information has evolved. It used to be my lunch was private. Now I have a picture on Instagram, and you can see where I am, what I'm meeting, who I'm with. So in certain ways, it is evolving. And the only reason we want privacy is to avoid being punished for whatever it is we do. If tomorrow somebody says, you shouldn't be reading this book, you shouldn't be watching this movie, that's the concern. If there is no consequences to our behaviors, privacy is less valuable. I don't care about privacy for the sake of privacy. I just don't want to get screwed. So if it evolves in a direction of more freedom, where people can do things they like and there is absolutely no concern about consequences, that's one way to address it. But in terms of avoiding technological problems of just violating your every moment, I don't see a solution. And likewise, do you believe that st state actors um, will become harder to overthrow? Like, if you have this technology and you can watch every subversive, and like, does that technology, is it in the end? Because I remember, I'll come back to the question, but I remember Orwell wrote an essay who said that when the weapons are cheap and available, the people have power. So if all you got are guns, the people have power. Because the government has guns, they have guns. If you live in a world with nuclear weapons or all of the, where the government has disproportionate power, it turns toward totalitarianism. Do you think that that's a likely path with this technology, that governments will use it to suppress 
uh, dissent and bring that world about. We're starting to see it. Large corporations, which host most of our information, Facebooks of the mm. world, they decide what is permissible, what we can post, what should be deleted. Certain channels get banned, and there is a good reason to think that government and large corporations are working together on those things. So it's already happening. I think the biggest problem on the web is you don't know what's true and what's not true. Is there a solution to that? Because the argument that says there isn't a solution is that, you know, this, the statement... Um, Cutting taxes promotes economic growth. That's a belief, and maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. And it, there's, a, there's an old saying that if you torture the data long enough, it will confess to anything. <laughs> Do you think that w this dream of I can hover over any factual statement and it will instantly, I can be told if, it, if it's true or not, it will happen? So it's a technical solution to a social problem. If uh, we're talking about fake news or deep fakes, mm -hmm. I can develop forensic software probably with certain statistical probability to tell you this is fake picture, this is fake video. But there are people today who think the planet is flat. It's not the absence of facts or evidence or accurate videos. You need to address people. If I see a video with my own eyes of president doing something, do I care that 24 hours later you release a report saying that there is 64% chance that it's fake? That's not how elections work. That's not how human psychology works. We need to address people's understanding of the world, not provide more advanced statistical tools. So how do you do that? I have no idea. That's not my area of expertise. I, I, well, I thought you were... Um, so you generally... You're, you feel like your job is to kind of raise these alarms and point these things out, but you're not a policy person, right? You don't. Well, I can do everything. I'm trying no, to no, concentrate I'm not, I'm on... Uh, not being critical. No, I'm no, no, I understand. I'm just explaining. I wish I had infinite time and many uh -huh. copies of me to address all the interesting questions. They're certainly very interesting to me, but I have to prioritize. I'm going, well, what is the most important problem in the world right now? Let me work on that and let others worry about everything else. Not because it's not important, but because I cannot be there at the same time. And how long have you been in the field and doing what could be called AI? Uh, depends on what you classify. So AI safety, I would say about 10 years, probably longer than most people in that field. And what, you've, you've said some things that, well, I'll, I'll just ask the question. Um, do you think that the safety issues are being taken seriously? by people who can change things? Or is, are, are we like charging mindlessly into this future, building these machines we cannot control, a world we do not understand, building systems we cannot explain? Like, or, and you're, you're are you Cassandra? You know, your curse is to make prophecies that are true but nobody believes? Or is the world waking up to the safety issues? So I think some of the smartest people in the field and a lot of people who are in control of resources and large uh, corporations do understand those issues, but they have this uh, conflict of interest situation where billions of dollars are based on their ability to produce a better model next month to develop more results. They hope that they can somehow add enough safety team members to the project to where they will steer it in a good direction. But uh, it's a conflict of interest. You can expect someone whose success depends on developing more capable systems to say, we need to slow down. This is going too fast. Let's spend more time on basic research. It's just not how human psychology works. So there is a problem for sure. And when I ask people when they think we're going to get general intelligence, and it seems to me you believe like you, you might say what you said earlier, it's not really black and white. We're building systems that progressively look more and more like they can do more of these things. But will there be some watershed event that when you see blank happen, when you see a computer beat Lisa Dole and go, something different is happened in the world? Uh, is there something that people listening to this can, can say, okay, when I see blank, I'll know we have crossed another threshold? Uh, not really. There is a very good paper by Eliezer Yurkovsky. I think it's something like there is no fire alarms for AGI. 
And he basically makes this argument. There is not a single thing you can look for and know that exactly 10 years from that point you'll get AGI. Uh, I have papers about AI completeness showing that certain problems require general intelligence. If you can solve one, you can solve all of them, you got AGI. So this is a binary situation. First you have better, better systems, none of them can do it, and then they can do it all. And historically, people predicted that, okay, computers will never play chess, or computers will never drive cars. All those predictions failed, and we still don't have AGI. So I don't think there is a specific breakthrough you can uh, point to. But the difference between AGI and a superintelligence, would you measure that in minutes, weeks, years? Uh, once it crosses that threshold, how long does that take? I think it's almost instantaneous. Take Thank a human, you. add access to internet, infinite memory, and super speeds. Yes. You got superintelligence. Maybe not, the, there are many types of superintelligence. It could be faster, it could be smarter in terms of problem solving ability. So you immediately get the faster kind. In, in the um, Avengers movie, Age of Ultron, they, pumped, they plugged Ultron into the internet. 15 minutes later, he decided it was time to kill the world. That's all it took. He like, and then that was it. Um, right, so I haven't seen the movie, but I assume if they had twice the computer, it would take eight minutes. Yes. So it really depends on the resources you're operating with. Um, is that how that would work? Wouldn't it be logarithmically less time? I have no idea how oh, okay. long it takes to possible. Um, so when you're not doing AI stuff, what do you have other interests outside of this that are tangential? Uh, or is this kind of your whole, all of your intellectual effort goes into this? So as I said, anything to do with intelligent systems is of interest. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about understanding pretty much every aspect of our world through this prism of intelligence. So simulation argument. Are there more intelligent entities designing universes? Can we escape from this universe? Can we understand something about them by studying this universe? Do the laws of physics being so nice and clean indicate that this is a programmed system? Why is it E equals MC squared, not some 400 factor equation? Explain that. So things like that are interesting, but I, I don't think I'm good enough to produce uh, publishable results yet. Yes. I understand, but uh, two years ago you would not have said you're going to write a paper on uh, why computers are conscious. I agree. Maybe in two years I'll have something more intelligent to say. So, last thing, you're a fascinating guy. Like I said, how do people keep up with you? Uh, do you... Uh, would, do you Social media, blog, like what do you do? Yeah, I'm active on social media. You can follow me on Twitter, Roman Yam. You can follow me on Facebook, just don't follow me home. <laughs> All right. It has been a fantastic uh, chat. You are um, welcome to come back anytime and continue the conversation, but I've already imposed upon you longer than I agreed to, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and if you enjoyed this conversation, you should join us at gigaohm.com, where we've launched Voices in Innovation, a new show where I, Johnny Baldisberger, interview an analyst or group of analysts each week on a specific topic affecting the tech industry. For future forward advice, reports, and research, come to gigaohm.com for all of your research needs.